Welcome to Trash Future. It's your favourite podcast. It's Trash Future. Uh, mm. I am Supply Teacher Alice this week because right. Riley is away in the like Italy-themed level in Hitman. Joining me, yeah. as always, Milo and Hussein. How's it going, guys? That's good. He's getting That's Ripley. I mean, look, he's gone to the heart of the Ripley <laughs> universe to get Ripley to go. He's, I mean, I, I've always been sort of uncertain <laughs> when I've referenced the talented Mr. Ripley about Riley's endless Mediterranean holidays, whether he is getting mm. talented Mr. Ripley or mm. whether he is talented Mr. Ripley. I think Ripley-ing. he is talented, because he's the least posh person on all of those holidays, yeah, which yeah. isn't to say that Riley isn't posh. It's just to give you a picture. He's, he's going to, like, fake his own death. You know, we're going to continue the podcast without him, and then right, we're going to see a guy who is, like, ostensibly named, like, Dickie Greenleaf or whatever, who mm. is just Riley, undercover in disguise. What if, what if he's actually trying to get Mr. ripley and so he's actively going on all these holidays Ooh. to particular destinations ah. because he just wants to get beaten to death with an orc. Because he wants to. <laughs> he wants the story of how I got Mr. Ripley, but it just keeps not happening. Yeah, I mean that kind of ties in with the sort of like hitman levelness <laughs> of the place. Is that he's constantly yeah, like going yeah. around sipping from like drinks that are like foaming <laughs> with poison and stuff. Um, Riley, yeah, the grand piano's dangling precariously above him. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so, Riley getting like half beaten to death with an oar and his explanation being like, I was trying to get into kink. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, I should also, play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like we are, we are method on this show. And obviously mm-hmm. Alice, in order to play Riley, has been drinking a selection of fine wines all That's day. Right. I, Unfortunately, I, to... I had to play Alice, so I've been taking huge doses of estradiol <laughs> and a chance to catch up. Yeah, I, I have had the wine flight. Uh, you have had the sort of like uh, gender confirming I'm hormone just, I'm just pretty emotional right now. <laughs> and Hussein has now been displaced onto mm. you. So, yeah. I mean, congratulations uh, uh, yeah, on the BMW. Stresses you yeah, out. I'm I'm just like honking my uh, honking my BMW horn in standstill traffic mm. as we are uh, as, mm. as as yeah. we approach Essex. That's right. <laughs> we have <laughs> a full show crossing the Thames estuary. <laughs> <laughs> we have a full show. Um, we are we've got some news. We've got a startup. We've got a fun little article I found, and then in about a half hour's time or so, we're going to hear from past Alice, past Riley, past Milo and past Hussein, to mm. speak to past Joseph Burton, uh, mm. a guy who used to work for the US State Department, has written an article about what it's like doing some like evil bureaucracy. So that's and then founded time. a very affordable menswear chain. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, yeah. Also, tune into uh, if you want to hear about affordable menswear or unaffordable menswear. You can listen to mm. other podcasts, which I will not plug in the middle of the show that we're doing right now. No, we'll, pl- we'll plug them at the end. Mm. Um, <laughs> yeah, but- you can listen to the 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 like Derek guy, the gentleman's whatever mm. podcast. Yeah, but yeah, I'm I'm afraid though we have a jarring change in tone. First up, because oh, no. The podcast has once again suffered a grievous loss. Um, you know, oh, someone... Riley's finally been killed on that holiday. No, this is, no. is it ticker tape coming out of Alex Alice's <laughs> machine here. <laughs> a, a greater and more sort of tragic, talented Mister mm. Ripleying has happened. Um, okay. As friend of the show, someone who you know we are all very fond, Evgeny Prigozhin, um, has mm. it seems shuffled off this mortal coil. Um, no, I, mean, I was so here for this. <laughs> I mean, first of all, may I say, uh, Russian air travel is statistically very dangerous for certain individuals, <laughs> and it is right. something that needs to be investigated. 
Have you, have you seen the official line that the Russian government is taking to explain this? Uh, no. What is the official line? So basically, what actually happened is they shot his plane out of the sky with a fucking SAM missile system, <laughs> which is, I think, yep. one of in 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 quite a competitive league table, the most blatant Russian state assassination of all time. But what they mm. are saying happened is that, and this is the most TF possible thing, Please. that the pilot got myocarditis from the vaccine. <laughs> and had- and like collapsed at the wheel and crashed the plane. Fantastic. Yeah. So the people joking saying vaccinated question mark were actually pretty close to the official Kremlin line on this. There, there is no hack joke you can make about this that isn't sort of true. If you do the Gaddafi mm. joke and you're like, oh, he was going to create a United States of Africa, he was just in Rwanda kind of yeah. saying he was going to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he was getting deported from Rwanda, one of the only people that sort of happened to. Um, yeah, I can't believe they like fully just shot down his plane in between Moscow and St. Petersburg too. Like that's really yeah. it's it's, it, it's, humi- it's humiliating to die in Tversky Oblast, but you know, mm. so I guess some guy's got to do it. It kind of it sends a message too to be like not just like fuck you, but fuck anyone near you as well. Um, oh yeah, fuck the pilot. Imagine yeah. being that like, yeah, actually, I don't want to. Like, he starts getting like, like fucking like Louis C.K. <laughs> like, there's like no one, no one will work with him. Like, I'm not flying this guy anywhere. It's too high risk. <laughs> You'd think that like the the smarter people were already doing that, but I like to imagine mm. there was one guy who was like really excited. It's like, wow, private jet with you know flying on the Gulf Stream with mm. the guy that Putin wants to kill more than anyone else in the world. <laughs> uh, you get a free hot dog. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one of those sort of like super dangerous electric hot dog grills. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. George Foreman was on the plane with him. I mean, RIP. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, it sends a message, right? But I, I just, I, I was kind of surprised that it was this blatant. I would have thought they would have poisoned him, but I guess those guys were on holiday or something. I mean, you know, I guess they earned it, right? You know, they're all, they're all yeah. sort of like uh, toasting with Riley and Santorini or whatever mm. the fuck right now. Got to do it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, Genny Prigozhin alive in Serbia? Question mark. What he got? He got Ripley. <laughs> there was a minute where people thought he was he was gonna do the prestige, right? Because his other plane was landing like ten minutes behind, and there was sort of like ten twenty minutes on Twitter where everyone were like, was like, "Is he gonna get out of this one and pull off the sort of like ultimate level Joker's trick?" Yeah, there are actually two Yevgeny Prigozhin's that look identical, <laughs> and you cannot tell them apart. On, on, like in relation to the Joker, like you know, there's nothing mm. ruling out the whole Bane thing, right? Like you know, you sort of think that's true. You sort they of think he's dead. One of us in the wreckage. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> mm. So you think he's dead, and then he'll show up at like a random, like, uh, yeah, like a, a sports game, and say that, uh, you know, somewhat, yeah, he's got a big nuclear bomb. We've seen yeah, this. The before, next yeah. like Spartak Moscow game is going to get like the entire sort of field exploded under. You have merely adopted catering. <laughs> I was born in it, nurtured by it. Yeah, actually, if the whole field exploded at Spartak Moscow, that would be more or less a regular game. <laughs> like, people just throwing live hand grenades onto the pitch because like one guy looks a bit Portuguese or whatever. God's sake. Yeah, so that that has happened. We're very we're very sad to hear it because you know he was a big influence on us coming up. Yeah, he didn't. R. He didn't, R. He didn't Gen, even yeah. get to see the film about what happens if a gamer becomes a race car driver. Uh, That's true. Yeah. Mm. No, I mean well. Putin's going to be watching Gran Turismo and sort of like <laughs> yeah. bursting into tears, thinking, you know, who would have loved this <laughs> is Yevgeny, yeah, yeah, yeah. old mate Evgeny would have loved this shit. 
him and Captain Tom are up there right now grilling <laughs> naked with Keith Chegwin. <laughs> and that's that's all we he's in a better place, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Um, in other news, uh, we have some we have some British content here. Um, we've Ooh. talked about this a bit before, but uh, the ULES, the ultra low emissions zone, has mm. now extended across all of London. It is extremely illegal to the tune of like twelve pounds fifty a day to drive a shitty car in London anymore. You have wokeness have- has won. Yeah, you have to have a woke car. Well, and it's also, it's killed Yevgeny Prigozhin because he was going to fly directly over London's airspace, but due to the ULEZ charge, he had to divert into the Tverskaya Oblast region <laughs> yeah. of Western Russia. Yeah, an extremely vertical uh, sort of speed, yeah. yeah. Yeah, they don't tell you about the uh, the ULEZ no-fly zone, which is enforced by SAM systems. <laughs> <laughs> was sort of, they almost had that during the Olympics. We could bring it back so, so easily. But no, what is happening, though, is a kind of fucked citizens resistance movement it's a bit like uh mm. you know how in france they had the gilets jaunes right yeah. who were this like weird yeah. me- like mishmash of reactionaries and like people who were just kind of pissed off that the cost of fuel was going up and people who just like were like anti-government for good reasons and bad reasons well what's happened now is i regret to say mm. your dad has started doing direct action <laughs> and yeah. the, the daily mail has spoken to these people um, they have spoken to a group of people who call themselves the Blade Runners. Oh, hell yeah. Yes! Complete with photos of sort of like older men ballied up, right, wearing like mm. the hoods up, clutching the carcasses of the cameras that are used to like enforce the boundary of the ULEZ. Mm. You see a traffic enforcement camera lying on its back. What do you do? <laughs> I don't know why Blade Runners. I don't know why they picked that. It doesn't seem to me to relate that. Maybe they just thought Ryan Gosling was cool in the sequel. I don't know. But maybe they all maybe they're getting, Ryan Yeah, they're Gosling. getting confused with like Blade Runner and Drive. Yeah, <laughs> like a bunch of older guys wearing balaclavas and a scorpion jacket. Yeah, <laughs> that would be awesome. I mean, I the ULEZ does to it, join it's... by aesthetics alone. Yeah, I, if the ULEZ oppresses anyone's freedom, it's the driver from the movie Drive because that's the one thing he likes to do. Uh, and so <laughs> that would be really guys. funny if he was like a getaway <laughs> driver, but he's like, "But I'm not playing the ULEZ." <laughs> he said, "Now that's fucking robbery." So I'll like... tell you what. <laughs> He loves to drive his 2006, like, I don't know, fucking Renault. Mm-hmm. And he's now, got a diesel uh, Volkswagen Passat as a getaway car. <laughs> so these guys, um, what they. It's they've... a reliable vehicle. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it's kind of table stakes, right, to point out the hypocrisy that, like, the way the Daily Mail is covering them versus the way the Daily Mail covers, like, Just Stop Oil, right? Yeah. Is, like, the picture captions are, um, you know, this camera's days of spotting polluting cars in London are over after it met its end at the hands of a Blade Runner. Or there's one about, like, um, you know, like, Londoners coming together to, like, rise up. Yeah, Londoners joined together in the fight against ULEZ, right? Mm. Um, But what's... So they, they claim they've destroyed, like, you know, however many hundred cameras. But the reason why they've done this is because mm. they've figured out what the cameras are actually for. And it's not for, like, mm. making sure you have a woke car. Okay. Uh, they quoted one of them, in fact. It's a way to try to restrict our movements. It's the tip of the Ooh. iceberg. We do uh, not cr- live in a democracy. Critical support? Kind? No, critical support. Hesitant support. I, it, yeah, I mean, it gets worse. Uh, <laughs> what we will achieve by our actions is the removal of the infrastructure and waking up the sleeping masses to what is really going on. 
I was just going to say, Alice, before we riff on this any further, can you mm. just can you just tell us if this if any of the rest of these quotes are going to contain the words the Jews? Because I think <laughs> it's, like, it's important before knowing what jokes they're, to make. They're going to sort of imply it. I'd oh, say. Okay, great. Ah, yeah. Okay, then then I then I take away my hesitant support. <laughs> this is and this I'm is simply the thing, right? yeah. shaking my head. Because what, for what, various what, reasons. what they're talking about is uh direct action in favor of sort of uh like power to the people, right? One of them says, We the public have paid mm. for these cameras, we own them. We are only governed by consent, and it's about time we took the power to the people. Which is an interesting sort of strain of militancy, right? And then you look and you go, well, okay, why are you choosing to apply that to the cameras that make sure your car is woke? And their answer is, because of 15-minute cities. That's why. Yeah, right. it's it's so it's so often like people on this kind of cranky end of the right, they're mm. sort of they're so close to seeing what the problem is, but just not quite. Like there's yeah. like a you can see like like there is there's a huge surveillance culture in the UK mm-hmm. and, and like a lot of it, whilst sometimes put in for like relatively benign reasons, could could be utilized by less benign people to yeah. do very non-benign things. And that that's an interesting public discussion that's worth having. Do I think we should be, you know, bringing the Jews into it? I don't, I don't think so. Absolutely not. Um, <laughs> I mean, these these are like uh, like automated number plate recognition cameras, yeah. right? So they can send mm. you the fine if, you, if you're mm. driving like a shitty car. Yeah, that, that's a sort of like you just fairly... get fined for having a shit car. Like, yeah. this and what you're fucking nonce. <laughs> but that, that's like you say, that's a sort of like frightening piece of technology, maybe. And and what these people are saying is, you know, uh, we can withdraw our consent for that unilaterally by like destroying the infrastructure and sabotaging it ourselves. Yeah, and it's like it's a complete sort of like misdirected piece of energy right it's like it's so strange like anytime in fiction you see like people like rise up against dystopian technology it's you know it's mm. perceived as like mm. a, like a young thing like a left thing like an anarchist thing and instead what we're getting is watchdogs uh like bexley right like there's guys in yeah. bromley who are like they came <laughs> for the volkswagen percent well look from from like as so this is my dispatch from the heart of the resistance which mm, is the little yeah. cul-de-sac that i live in where mm. um we have several cars that have like but have been, now been decorated with anti ulez like stickers. I saw one this morning, mm-hmm. and I was like, "Huh, that's a mm-hmm. very interesting aesthetic." Uh, my my neighbor, who uh, uh, a few months ago had English Democrat stickers on his car, now has just right. pivoted to anti ulez stuff. So I think that's cool. Um, there's a there's a core demographic that are, that are present in a lot of these organizations. But I think mm. there's something in, there's something really interesting in this, which has to do with like digital culture. I think to a certain extent as well, yeah. and just how you kind of get from this point of like, you know, you can sort of see where they're coming from. And I don't necessarily mm. think that. I mean, for lots of for like a host of reasons, like the whole ULES rollout has been like a real shit show. And it's worth sort of saying, mm. but like in the context of Bexley Council, they spent more money trying to take um, the mayor and the mayor's team to court. And then losing in a really obvious case where they knew they would fucking lose, um, then doing any type of public uh, outreach to su- mm. sort of suggest that like, yeah, the ULAs is coming. Uh, it might be worth like putting your shitty car in a scrappage scheme where you will kind of get more money than you would selling it like privately, right? There was mm-hmm. no like literature about that at all. To the point where like our neck our like local next door 
um, group, which is like to, 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 to kind of like go to surveillance for a second, like our next door group and many next door groups, I imagine fucking love surveillance. They love their ring cameras. They love yeah. sort of neighborhood watch snitching. They love snitching on people who they think aren't sort of like doing their bit for the neighborhood watch. That was mm, an yeah. interesting one that happened, right? Seen a they love the surve- Duke, possible nonce. <laughs> they fucking they fucking love the surveillance state, right? And so yeah. when they're sort of saying these things, it's like, yeah, you're you're getting to something, but like it then sort of stops when it comes yeah. to this personal grievance. But the thing is, the way that like it is then refracted onto digital culture, it is one that kind of automatically gets absorbed into these broader sort of sets of conspiracies. And mm. so like, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, the, the point to be made is that if you don't want to get rid of your like 2006, like Volvo yeah, or whatever, yeah. then you're not going to be able to drive into like London from, you know, where you are, right? That, mm. That's a fairly obvious thing, but you can drive southwards. You can drive outside of London to then go, you know, diagonally, like mm. you're not, it's not the 15 minute city thing, but like yeah, they're yeah. then convinced that, oh, this will just sort of mean that we'll be stuck in like- Yeah, and we locked in. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We'll be locked into Bexley for the rest of our lives. You know, bearing in mind that like, you know, in the case of my neighbor does not really leave anyway, but that's sort of beside the point. But yeah, I feel yeah, like yeah. It, it it sort of gets absorbed into these like much wider conspiracies, and so yeah. as a result, like anything, even the energy that could potentially be like leveraged to be like, yeah, like no surveillance is really bad, and like dismantling it like can sort of achieve much broader mm. objectives that benefit everyone. It then sort of you know it can then so easily then just be taken into these kind of conspiracies that are then extremely difficult to kind of get people out of and also mm. just completely lose sight of like what they were mad about in the first well, place. Of course, like you can yeah. you can weaponize this for anything, right? Like once you've got people angry enough about it that like your dad is willing to look like he's joined the provost, right? And he's like <laughs> being photographed in a field with like a three-hole balaclava on. Like you can yeah, get yeah, him yeah. on board with fucking anything. COVID isn't real. Jockey LNPR. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> mm. Sure. We got there in the end, yeah. Um, <laughs> and it's just like this. It's a, it's a real, it's a real gift to to any sort of like extremist movement. I guess. Well, we, but I mean, even like you know, beyond extremists. Although I'm putting my lip hat on and being like the real extremist for Tory party, but like mm. you can sort of see how they are like leveraging that anyway, right? Yeah. Like the Tory kind of mayoral mayoral candidates are you know very much sort of playing into the sort of like broader conspiracy theories despite like Yulez being a Tory policy um to begin with and also one that like until very very recently they also supported um yeah. not least because m- many people in their like you know many of their natural voter base will be people who have who will who would have bought new cars mm. anyway like most of the cars yeah, in london yeah, if yeah. you drive in london like for the most part you have the money to replace it i, I don't want to like assume yeah. too much but i do i i do i am i feel like i am safe in at least the basic assumption but if you have a shitty 2006 like volvo diesel or whatever like mm. you probably do have the money to replace it with a 2008 petrol volvo which does yeah. not like fall into the Nice Especially thing, right? these guys. The, these are not the mm. guys who are like going to be most yeah, sort of yeah, like yeah. fucked over by this. But you know, yeah. it, it's. I think 
it's a bit of a case for me of like with the uh, Sadiq Khan like overplaying his hand a bit and like playing a stupid game and winning a stupid prize to an mm. extent. In that, like when they brought the ULEZ in initially, it was contiguous with the congestion charge zone. There was literally no objection because no one was really driving in there anyway. Then they expanded it to the North Circular and South Circular, which is basically covering still essentially very urban, built-up areas of London. So it was kind of also went largely without incident. There was a little bit more rumbling about that. But then now they've extended it to these like incredibly suburban areas, to some Orpington. of which may as well not be in London. Like no one, people who live in those areas don't really consider themselves as even living in London in a lot of cases. And they're places where like you need a car. And a lot of these people have had these cars since when the government, I am old enough, Pepperidge Farm remembers, <laughs> when the government was telling you to buy a diesel car because it emits less CO2 than a petrol car, which is true, but it also emits particulate, which is worse for air quality. But, you know, the, 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 uh, I actually like, moved in, I like inhaling the diesel actually. Um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, a lot of people are kind of like, and it's like, it's not, it, did they really need to do this expansion? Did it, did it really matter that much in these very non-built up, non-superurban areas? Probably not. And it's, I, I mean, it's like, insane. Yeah, you, you, you pick this, this fight with sort of like yeah. a very outer London. And this is, the, as you say, you know, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. What you get is a bunch of dads in a field holding your surveillance cameras. I, yeah, I, yeah, I mean, yeah. I sort of, I sort of want to want to say one final thing, which is that, Please. like, I think, I think, like, politically speaking, yes, like, this stuff needs to happen as a bare minimum on the basis that, like, cars suck, pollution sucks, mm-hmm. like, you know, and even in the suburban areas, like, you know, air quality is not great. It is not sure. very, very, it, it is not good. But you also have, like, local government that just does not give a shit about any of it, right? Because ultimately, if we're thinking about, like, London as a city and what greater London represents. And like, I'm sure all of you, like both of you will know this as people who sort of live in these areas or at least have been familiar with these areas. Mm. Like these are areas that are defined by, you know, the sort of political class that, you know, wins beyond sort of like the buy to let landlords and stuff are drivers, right? Like everything's rooted in driving, like even in these suburban areas of London, like I feel like what people like who may not be familiar with these territories are, is that even though they are technically London boroughs, like you kind of have one bus and that bus, maybe like doesn't show up half the time. Like you may as well be living outside of it. And so for the most part, like you do need a car um, if you do actually want to get anywhere, right? You can walk it like maybe, you know, it is better. It's better than nothing. Don't get me wrong. It's better than places that don't have buses, but there is not enough public transport to sort of make it efficient options. And so within that, and also within like local governments who just don't give a shit about public transport, you have this class of people who are like, well, the car is really the only kind of thing that I own that gives me a sort of sense of freedom of mobility and any sort of perceived threat to that real or not is kind of like the only one of the only animating forces of politics right mm-hmm. it's like the reason why the only things that really get sort of fixed in the area that I live for example and even then it takes fucking ages but the only thing that really gets fixed is not like local health services it is not you know domestic abuse or like you know like shelters it's not libraries it's roads. Like roads are the only thing that sort of get repaired eventually. And they barely fix those, to be honest. And they barely fix those, but eventually My they like- guy yeah. will tell you how many times <laughs> I've been in there this year. And so like this kind of like where you sort of have like low expectations in terms of politics anyway, and yeah. also groups of people that have kind of just given up on the idea that like democratic politics will sort of do anything for them materially. It's like, you know, the car is really the only animating thing. And so what I feel like what this is, is the first kind of sign of like a perceived threat to like the few things that 
many people in these areas feel that they have. And like, there's a broader conversation about that in terms of how people feel and everything. But like, I feel like at least from an observational level, that's sort of what's going on in like the areas of Bexley that I'm familiar with. After this all simmers over in like mm. a year's time, we'll we'll like really get into this and we'll do some like live reportage on the barricades that these guys are setting up. Um, but in the meantime, I have a tasty little startup for us. Um, mm. Its name is Caden, and is not an American middle schooler. Gonna, I'm gonna gonna give you a little bit from the the lead. K- Caden, how are they spelling that? First of all, C A D E N. Oh, that's a very okay. Yeah, yeah and right. the, the tagline is, and I, I will say this is the same word every time. Control your blank, learn from your blank, earn real money for your blank. What do we think Caden is? Do we want to go Hussein? Come. <laughs> control, control your cum, learn from your cum, earn real money for your cum. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, so. I know that you said it's not an American middle schooler, but no. you didn't say it wasn't a AI-generated person, so I'm going to say it's an AI-generated nephew. It's, a, it's an uncle simulator. <laughs> it does contain an AI-generated person, but it's not, strictly speaking, it does Nepotism more than Nepotism with no vowels in it. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, well, I'm thinking about the word Caden. Mm-hmm. I think I like kind of related maybe to like cadence. Oh, it has, like... has n- absolutely no relation <laughs> to the name. Okay, right, fine, fine, fine. Um, I mean, well, drawing on the boring knowledge I have of every other startup we've ever talked to on this program, is it something to do with your data? It's got it, got it in one. Yeah. Control your data, learn from your data, earn real money for your data. So it would Caden, be better if it was calm. It's true. Caden is a sperm clinic. Caden has just got it, like $24 million worth of funding. Um, okay. And what it is, is it's an app that, you know how you're constantly giving your data away to like different mm. other services like your bank or Amazon or whatever? Well, sure, yeah, OnlyFans, whatever. Yeah, exactly. What if, instead of that, you could just consolidate all of that data you're giving away by giving it away to this one app? Oh, it's Ocean Finance, but for your data. Exactly. That then <laughs> gives it away to like those people. What if you had like a data middleman? Um, oh, okay. And if you do that, they will pay you real money, real Real hard money. Not even cryptocurrency. No, they, they pay in dollars even, because, wow. as they say, your data is powerful, interesting, mm. and valuable. Um, mm. And so you should give all of it to them. Um, they have yeah, this, that's like, why we pay in dollars, don't ask which country. <laughs> they, they have this kind of like very nice light mode website with a very sort of like affected uh, FAQ, which is Caden's story, uh, which mm. has like emojis and stuff in it. Um, oh no, not emojis. Wave emoji, we're Caden and we believe every digital citizen should be part of the data economy and the one who can decide how their data is used and what they want in exchange. I mean, if you're on the internet, which most people have to be, unfortunately, sure. you are part of the data economy. That's true. Like, mm. really, really, like the better copy is like, would you like to sort of, you know, you're, you're, getting, sh- you're getting milked for free. Would you like some money? Out mm-hmm. of this data, and yeah, some people are means. paying to get milked, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, and, and that data and that's different. A website is, get, is going directly to Caden. Um, mm. So, 
You could be paid to be jacked off. That's right. Uh, we're mm. completely obsessed with privacy, so you can rest assured that every function and product we offer protects privacy, period. Because Has it got the cool. zipped mouth emoji? I feel like that would have added to that for me. What, what, what you're doing is you're taking all this data, you're putting it into one app on your phone, and you might say that's quite vulnerable, right, to have one app know everything about like your banking details and your OnlyFans subscriptions, and maybe <laughs> that's kind of like a, a risk factor. And they say, don't worry about it. So don't worry about it. Uh, because And that is a common thing that a lot of startups that we talk to say. Yeah. They don't, say, don't, don't worry about don't, it. Don't worry about it, because it's Why time worry? to, and this is in bold, make everything better. And then they have a little blue heart emoji. Um, Great. Ah, the but, Tory heart. <laughs> but what's really funny, uh, famous Ed, Edgar Allan Poe story there, uh, What's really mm. funny is that, like, on this website, they will say in this sort of light mode, customer-facing thing, oh, we've paid out literally, like, hundreds of thousands of dollars. We've, you know, it's... Uh, don't ask which country. <laughs> yeah, don't ask how many people that is, either. Um, yeah. uh, but then, they have a little for business thing. And you click on that, and I shit you not, the website changes from light mode to dark mode, and their pitch awesome. becomes much scarier... Oh, that's so cool. I actually quite like that as a UI experience. Yeah, if you if you read the like for business FAQ, mm. it doesn't have mm. a fun little heart. It doesn't have a fun little emoji. Okay. It tells you compliance is mission critical, right? <laughs> <laughs> we acquire hundreds of millions of data points per day. At Caden, we're saying the quiet part loud. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Q, this is... I, yeah, Q, I, I have read 100,000 posts. And if, yeah. if you sort of like dig into why this is happening, why they're trying to like pay you off to, to give you your data, the reason why is because more and more states, you know, both the EU and like states in the US, are passing these consumer privacy acts, which means mm. that. Places like have to tell they're you no what, fun. Yeah, because they're no fun. Because they don't like posting emoji at you. Um, you, you know they, they are enforcing laws that make places tell you what data they're collecting, and let you like opt in and out of it. And this is an attempt to steal a march on those and say, well, instead of that, what if you just gave it to us instead, a, a trusted third party? Um, yeah, we've got all your ULES camera data. Yeah, exactly. we, know, we know when you've been going to the London Borough of Bexley. It's um, and the, the Spearmint Rhino will buy that data off us. Their the, the CEO is this guy John Rower. He's an American um, who mm. he had this like John Rower. John Rower. He had this like yeah. Swedish themed design bureau that he sold to Salesforce, made like millions of dollars, mm -hmm. and then uh, decided to spend a few years off the grid on an island in Europe. Apparently. Um, okay. Well, like the Isle of Man? Like, what are we? <laughs> Malta? Like, Rockall? Like, I don't. I, I feel like there, are, there just aren't really remote islands in Europe in the same. The Shetland? I don't know. Off, off the grid, too. And then he came back yeah. to put everybody Sealand? else on the grid. Um, We've got to get people on this grid. That's right. Uh, but I mentioned that it, it contains an AI nephew, right? Uh, right. This, is, this is one of their little, like, spin off projects. Caden AI. Now, Caden Ooh. AI is, it's like a Siri, right? Except it runs off mm -hmm. of AI. And yeah. it has and he's access. very happy with the Lego Bionicle you just bought him <laughs> for his birthday. <laughs> it has access. Your, your, your AI nephew has access to all of the data that you've been giving to Caden, right? Um, mm -hmm. And then you can just like 
ask it things or have it suggest you things based on that data. You can choose to be marketed to. Oh. And there's a little example on their website of some questions that you can ask this AI. Um, and some of them are, what cuisines do I enjoy most? Oh, cool. oh it's okay. the Riley AI. <laughs> what, what types of movies and TV shows do I enjoy? So if you weren't clear on this from the stuff you've been doing, you can do sort of like consumer research on do yourself. Do you desire the bounty of the sea again, uncle? <laughs> or might I provide you a lovely plate of oysters in exchange for yet another delectable bionicle? And so at some point that's just going to like become proactive, right? And you're going to get a little notification on your phone from your nephew being like, it, you should order a place of oysters because you usually order a place of oysters about this time of the mm. day. Like, yeah. And while you're, you're at it, can you please give me your credit card data? Yeah. yeah. Your yeah. AI nephew just slowly sliding a picture across a steel table to you and it's just a picture of a 1976 Polish army sniper uniform. You're like, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> I you just, know you want to, auntie. <laughs> I just feel like at best, right, this is fodder for the kind of people who like to see their own like Twitter or Instagram analytics, but at worst, yeah. this is like marketing wrapped. Yeah, uh, you you ate like sixteen oysters this year, kind of thing. <laughs> you ordered Burger Cunt seventy two times. <laughs> I'm trying to cut back, you know. It's it's real yeah, bad yeah. for me. But yeah, so so this is Caden, and it makes me profoundly uncomfortable. Yeah, as do some nephews. I'm trying to figure out how the AI is related to the main product. Oh, no, than, it's like, not at it, all. It's not right, at so all. Right, so, so it's just like this little experiment, but mm-hmm. I imagine this experiment is going to end up being like, hey, we can code you an AI girlfriend if you give us like all of your data. And, and that way we can use your data to optimize your girlfriend so that your girl, your AI girlfriend will talk to you about whatever you want all the time and not about having to do the dishes or... Exactly. Like, you know, yeah, they're uh, going to scrape all of your OnlyFans to make you the perfect AI girlfriend. And yeah, they're going to give you. That feels the, like the only logical approach, and that is why I support it. Mm. You know, Adriana from The Sopranos is on OnlyFans now. Really? Uh, I did not know yeah. that. Okay, okay wow. well, I yeah. hurriedly wrapping up the episode because <laughs> I think all of like, what, what's shit to do now? Now? I can be sure not to visit that that particular page. Yeah, what, what, yes. what, what's, the, what's the URL again, just for research purposes? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just so I can be sure to put that on my content lock. I, I, I'm being told by my AI nephew that I have an appointment to like type an address really fast into my browser. So th- <laughs> this taking us up to roughly the half hour mark, I think it's mm. now time to hand over to past us. Uh, and uh, and speak to Joseph Burton about little do they know the horrors that were to come. I know Th- they were still recording this when Evgeny Prigozhin was still alive. You know, I know, uh, I know. Didn't... Well, he was on the episode. <laughs> yeah, he was on the episode. <laughs> yeah, under the name of Joseph Burton, we have Evgeny Prigozhin for you now. Thanks the so much for coming on. The trash future. They want to destroy <laughs> Russia from the inside. <laughs> And I think we can just like go straight into that. We already signed off on at the end of that, so yeah, yeah. And we've th- all got to just go and get on our big trash future private jet flying directly to St. <laughs> Petersburg. It's leaving very right. shortly. I want to move on to the meat of our discussion. Of course, uh, Joseph, you have written a... Oh, mm. is that the jarring shift in tone 
bell I hear? <laughs> oh, I think it. I think it is. I think it's. I think it's time to get to get grim about uh-huh. think pieces. This is going to be great. No, so the um, you you are currently working on a book, and this book has been preceded in a little bit of sort of short uh, writing of some articles for Verso about the phenomenon of shooting and crying, uh, where functionaries for imperial bureaucracy um, in the places that are being imperialized uh, have w- have ways of, I guess you could say what, observing or being observed in a way that tends to absolve what's going on. Can you talk a little bit about, about your thesis? Yeah, yeah. So I, I started kind of chewing on this basically like in, I mean, I had this weird experience where I joined the U.S. Diplomatic Corps and obviously like, you know, the idea that this is going to be a 20 year career and that basically I wanted to have this kind of experience kicking around the world, dealing with like American citizens freaking out and ruining their lives and uh, the ways that that involves trying to become Indonesian, trying to become Indonesian. You know, why am I being arrested? Like, why can't you send like Marines to intervene in my property dispute with my brother in suburban Calcutta? Mm. Um, You know, like. levels of divorced guy that you've never met and it was like okay this is this is cool and i think my big thing was like i you know had become a little more jaded or cynical during the obama administration but i i want to stress and this is important i think for the article my bigger point that my ideology going into becoming a u.s diplomat was like okay like maybe a lot of this stuff is bad but like i can find the harmless corner of the institution where i'm just like you know, renewing your passport and I'm, you know, interviewing some immigration visas and I'm like, you know, doing notary services and, and gallivanting around the world, providing relatively you know, reasonable service for people. Mm. And like, I won't have to do any of the gross stuff. Sure. Right. And I think that that's that underpins a lot of 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 liberal ideology and goes hand in hand with, well, what happens when you do do the gross stuff? So I I um I was the Farsi language consular officer when the Muslim ban got implemented. I was at the U.S. Embassy in Ankara, and suddenly it was like, okay, well, this is your job now, right? Like, there's this waiting room full of Iranian grandmothers, and, like, you literally work at the racism factory now, right? So, like, all of them are going to come up, and you're going to deny all of their immigrant visas to go live with their grandchildren in L.A. because of who they are. And I mean, that racism it was on my this- desk by Monday. Yeah, you need the racism on there. My, my numbers were terrible. I was not moving the racism quotas um, nearly, nearly fast enough. But like there was something that happened in terms of how the institution writ large related to like not that the Muslim ban was really looking back on it that much weirder or worse than like the normal functioning of the U.S. security state, how it relates to certain people from certain places. But the fact that we were ordered to explicitly like it was basically like he Trump came out and just said the thing that like you're kind of not supposed to say which is like the 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 Muslims they're no good right and we're doing this for this reason you can do the same thing for other reasons but you have to say, insist that they're for other reasons and so in that moment I was in an institution where I hated it but everyone hated it right like this was I mean the State Department is like a very cozy bowl lanyard Obama Hillary I'm with her kind of liberal institution in terms of the hegemonic culture it's also like a I, I'm not gonna it, it's not like the old days of just being pale male and Yale it's still I mean like I'm I'm just another white dude in the State Department who's kind of like the the cool chill liberal guy and but it's also becoming more diverse than it used to be. It, you know, my, like, my boss was a pretty devout 
you know, not from a ban affected country, but like a pretty devout Muslim herself when we were doing this in, in Ankara, right? When we were, we were ordered to do this. And so what I be, have become kind of fascinated by is how people within liberal institutions, and I mean liberal as in culturally liberal, but also liberal as in like liberalism, how they react when ordered to do completely illiberal things. And then I think in, in this piece I wrote is, is kind of based off of, uh, an outgrowth of that about, well, then how does the whole moral universe of liberalism react when the mask comes completely off? Yeah. And and I suppose I, I could ask a, a, f- a further question, just jumping in here, right? You see, you, you reacted to this by eventually leaving, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I was in a lot longer than probably I should have. And there was a bunch of like bureaucratic and administrative reasons for that. And, you know, I was back in uh 2019, 2020, I was back in D.C. and I was working on the Afghanistan special immigrant visa desk, you know, basically moving a pile of Afghan visa applications who were not going to get approved in time from the 7000 applications that are not going to get approved in time pile to the 5000 applications that are not going to get approved in time pile. And um, I was looking at leaving and then COVID happened and I was like, well, maybe that's not the time to quit a government job uh, just yet. So I, I did I did leave eventually, but like I was in this weird thing of like most of the time I was inside the institution, I was like, this is really messed up. And I also know that there's this kind of like there's a latent, the very nature of immigration screening and its enmeshment with national security creates like a latent illiberalism within the liberal institution, which is liberal culturally and also liberal legally. Right. So we're administering these these laws that are based off of, you know, the 1965 Immigration and Nationality Act, fairness, openness, non-discrimination, equal process under the law. We are also like multilingual, multicultural, um, you know, diplomats who spend most of our time not living in the United States. But there's a huge ban Muslims button that's just on the wall. Right. And someone turned the button on. And then I think also kind of almost more importantly, someone just decided to turn the button off one day and like the button's still very much there mm. well you can't remove the button it's grade two listed it came no- oh no no yeah, yeah, next yeah. to the deep fat fryer hmm. no 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 it's, it's it's near the fryer you can't remove the mm. button like no well, one removes I, a button i, I, I want to also sort of note as well right you're talking about the u.s state department which sort of has been you know since uh the 19 1940s and 50s like the the a, a more liberal institution of u.s foreign policy than say uh, certain other ones. Uh, if the U.S., the State Department. Yeah, certain other institutions. Yeah. The, the State Department being, of course, targeted heavily by by McCarthy and his various um, uh, bulldogs. But you the at the what's interesting, right, is that across the Atlantic, the it's um, the, the department that handles immigration, the home office, an extraordinarily conservative department, but that has the same button and produces largely the same outcomes for the same groups of people. Mm. But attitudinally, sort of, but does not feel bad about it in the yeah. same ways. They're supposed to feel good about it, and that's and I think you've hit upon something like really interesting about you know th- like the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, as I understand it, doesn't really handle a lot of the immigration. No, it handles none of it. It's all the Home Office. But when they link those two together, and then explicitly kind of structurally link immigration to foreign policy and then link immigration to the part of the foreign policy apparatus that's like the nicest and most liberal ones, because like. There is an attitude in the State Department of like, we're not, you know, meathead military people. We're not those creepy other government agency, which may or may not have 
any sort of working relationship. But uh, anyways, um, so, you know, we're, we're not those people. We're not the military. We're the nice ones. We're the liberal ones. And it and this actually goes back a lot further than like Obama or or Hillary or something like that. This is a pretty long tradition of like, oh, the United Nations, multilateralism, all these good things. And so there was a really interesting thing that happened when, you know, the the Muslim ban happens in um, in 2017 is you get the one part of the U.S. government that absolutely does not want to do this gets handed a remit to do it. Right. And I think that that's almost an interesting kind of Petri dish for any kind of thing that you're looking at, which is, I think, becoming increasingly common in the world of, well, I know we have these explicit values. Um, we are now going to be absolutely annihilating those values when it comes to our policy, but we still need to kind of either one, put a fig leaf saying we're not doing it, or two, I think the function of the bureaucrat in this situation becomes like a sin eater, right? Like there's there's an, a need for the functionary and especially like the liberal functionary to... Um, to do it and then to feel bad about it yes, yeah. and to reconcile the kind of ideological contradiction of, uh, you know, a multicultural society that claims to be a multicultural society that is, I mean, in the case of the UK, like I'm sending gunboats into the channel to blow away um, refugees. We're reporting, we're, we're sending you all to a Dickensian prison barge. Look, it's called creating jobs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And some of the people doing those jobs, they might feel bad about it. You know, and that's I'll, I'll read from your article. In fact, it says they cannot change what governments and institutions and centers of power actually do. But the liberal moral universe demands a balancing of accounts by the agents of that power, whether the bureaucrats, soldiers, spokespeople or leaders. Effectively, they have to bear witness and have an emotional reaction. That's the uh, the Adolf Reed thing of like liberals believing in bearing witness to suffering. Right. So it's like uh, state back state back discrimination uh, eight fifteen to twelve thirty DEI committee meeting twelve thirty to one thirty and then back end processing for security screening for muscle band cases uh, rest of the day right and that's not an accident and it's not it's not really jarring right like our job was not so much. I mean, yes, to administer policies like the Muslim ban, because only we had the administrative capacity to do so, right? The Trump admin itself, they didn't have the chops to make the policy actually work. They didn't have the staffing. The Department of State did. But in a bigger sense, especially now that it's been repealed, but crucially is still there, can come back at any point. We have to perform, and we did perform when it was banned, a level of like contrition and a level of regretfulness and a level of like, ah, good, now things are back in order. Um, to basically say it was actually fine. We mitigated the harm of the policy. We were good people the entire time. And uh, you know what? Don't think about the sort, sort of harm, harm reduction. You know, someone else, someone who would have, you know, enjoyed it or someone who would have felt like explicit bias or someone who would have like, you know, been on board with this as a policy. It would have been worse having your visa denied by them because they would have taken pleasure in it. Exactly. And it's like I did. And that's that's where this this whole thing in the title of piece is like, we're so glad it's you is the reaction I got from my bosses. I got reaction from my family members, from people. I'd be like, hey, this is kind of messed up what I'm doing. Like, I did not sign up to do this, which is also, I think, 
I think it's a pretty interesting kind of self-reflexive point on my my own ideology that you think that you can join up with like literally a major imperial edifice and be like, but I just want to do the good it's, part. It's seductive. Right? You understand? It's seductive. And Ed, like that's part of it too, is the, the personal thing of like, no, I could be the only good person doing this, yeah. you know. And, and the whole point, I think that that's the, the interesting discussion here is it's not just that well, there is harm being reduced. It's that the people who would be the people who would be doing the um, uh, that would be the most outwardly prejudiced. The people who are, let's say, directly involved in the administration, they didn't, they weren't able to do it. They needed the sort of um, educated, well-meaning liberals or whatever to do the policy and feel bad about it. So, in fact, that it couldn't have otherwise been done. And so, it's it's what I and what I think your your writing sort of shows very well is that. Feeling bad about it isn't just a kind of a way to manage something going on politically outside yourself or, or something to try to distance yourself from from what's going on politically. It's actually a necessary that effective affective um, uh, uh, outcome is almost a necessary grease for the wheels of the empire itself. Yes. So it, it, it's diplomats are like definitionally ideological workers. And I think that that's why this insight, because, you know, the diplomats, they have to go out there and pitch it. They have to go out there and be like, explicitly, these are our values. This is what we're doing. You know, uh, you know, get out, talk about like global Britain or whatever. Or, like, they turn up for their shift to the ideology factory, but they don't own the means of production of ideology. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and, and you are, you get the ideology you're given, right? And if it, the ideology is we've got a statue of a boy in a tent and we've got, you know. If the man in front you know, of you is killed, you pick up the ideology. Yeah, you pick up the ideology and, and you continue if the person in front of you, you know, gets Giardia or whatever and has to be sent mm -hmm. home. Yeah, gets shot with the heart attack gun. But I, I think it's illuminating. And by the way, you can control F the Muslim ban for any insane illiberal policy, whether that's like the Rwanda scheme, whether that's the, you know, uh, you know, the uh, family separation at the U.S.-Mexico border, whether that's the Greek Coast Guard doing pushbacks in the Aegean, like any one of these can be fit in. But I think in the U.S. system, there was something about um, the fact that it was executive authority, the fact that the person ordering the illiberal policy was a a oaf who was considered to be like a democratic breach just by existing and the the explicit fact that the ideological workers also did the policy right that it was that the immigration apparatus and the diplomats were the same people and i i mean literally the same people so it, it was the muslim ban was administered out of these working groups inside the state department that had been stood up during the Obama administration for security screening and basically were building the infrastructure to do something like this before anyone thought to turn it into a ban. Well, in, indeed, it's also worth noting that those working groups that, that those working groups that were creating the infrastructure that Trump then used to create the ban, they were also largely formalizing under Obama uh, what were sort of, let's say, very draconian um, uh, immigration policies from Bush. I mean, the the real story of, as as I'm given to understand it, of that particular moment in history was actually a pretty straight through line from uh, from Bush Jr. Uh, all the way through to Trump. Yeah, and and it's turning like sentiment and specific targeting into actionable processes, right? And so I I should have a piece coming out in Foreign Policy um, about how like. A lot of these anti-Chinese land ownership laws, you know, there's a spate of laws in the United States basically banning certain people from certain countries, including like China, Iran, Syria, from like owning property or agricultural land. 
right? And how the, they are using justifications that legally passed muster to justify the Muslim ban to use this. So where if the Bush administration is like, hey, we just rendered, we just renditioned this guy from Romania and we've just worked, we've turned him over to the Egyptian services to get the security services to get tortured. And um, can we kind of find a way to make that legal retroactively of like, hey, we did fly all these guys to Gitmo and we're torturing them, but we got to figure that out retroactively. The Obama years were basically, okay, well, that's precedent. How do we systematize it? And now it's free floating, right? And now the same justifications and the same like actual institutions and mechanisms that you during the Muslim ban basically created this list of like unpeople, right? Of like, hey, these rights apply, but not for you. That's that's just like an eye of Sauron now, and it can focus on anyone, right? And that is what, in the end, really took me from a place of being like, okay, this is a messed up policy I'm implementing now, to like, there is a problem with the existence of this institutions. Because, you know, if you're in like a diplomatic career, you're gonna implement policies that suck and you hate. And there were other policies that sucked and I hated that I implemented because like, hey, that's part of the job. I signed on the dotted line. This cast a bigger question about like, well, what is the work of an institution like uh, global migration regulation? What is the work of even like a foreign ministry or a state department or, or a diplomatic corps when you start needing to mobilize ideology to these ends? And that's why I think, um, you know, I have this book proposal I'm shopping around. Uh, if you're a literary agent, what's up? I'd love to run it by you. Um, but. I think as time goes by, I'm less interested in the specificity of the Muslim ban and I'm more interested in like this phenomenon of the liberal institution resolving the contradictions of illiberal policies within itself, right? Which is why I didn't want to jump on the, the author Lawrence Wright for making that bad tweet about the, the beating of Isa Amro, the Palestinian activist. But I actually think that's why it's interesting to look at how he talks about the Israeli state and the, the mobilization of the idea of shooting and crying, right? Because, you know, shooting and crying is, is actually like a term uh, coined by this Israeli scholar about how like, you know, why did I have to go to this country and kill these people and now I feel bad about it? But what's interesting is like when, when this American, you know, liberal author encounters this happening in front of them, the Israeli state no longer feels a need to justify itself on liberal democratic principles. No. They're just like, I'm beating this guy. I don't care. Shooting and laughing. Yeah. Shooting and laughing. Yeah. And he had to kind of care for them. Right. Like, and I think that there's, uh, I think that there's something that's been put in motion. And I think, uh, especially around borders and migration, you're going to see this more and more of like first a process of reconciliation of like, you know, humanitarians, immigration officials, and liberal institutions being kind of sin eaters of like, oh, but but we need to help the migrants and and sure. make sure regularized crossings happen. And actually, and then they don't need you anymore. After a while, after a while, it becomes normalized enough that you don't need the people to feel bad. And I think it's interesting in in Britain the context of that where we've arrived at this sort of state uh, where we're sort of doing both at once. And if you'll if you'll forgive me, the joke was sort of shooting and cry laughing, right? <laughs> Yeah, well, it's. I think the, the one thing I, I also want to seize on here as well, right, is that if you look outside of the personal, right, that all of the all of the people involved might be might be sort of good people, uh, good people, capital G, capital P, scare coats, etc. Sure, there might be like yeah. nice people in the Greek Coast Guard. There sure. might be nice people anywhere. Indeed, mm -hmm. and 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 that they and they they have decided that the the weapon, if you like, the institutional weapon 
must be built. But if it is and they're the only ones who can build it, really, most likely they're the only ones who can build it well. And if it is going to be built, it had better be us. But but then, as you say, Joseph, the liberal institution that needs to exist in this way as it interlinks with the other, say, more conservative uh, institutions of foreign policy, such as intelligence agencies or such as homeland security agencies, ends up being building a crucial crying part of a machine that wouldn't work without it, that it just goes on to spread sort of, you know, uh, as you say, a uh, untold misery either across the Mediterranean, in visa processing centers in Turkey or, or, or outside Iran, uh, and so on and so on. Like, there is this institutional look at an institutional tool, and, and you can think of it as an actual machine or a weapon, uh, which I think is profitable. So, you, what we're saying here, our thesis is that uh, feeling bad is not a locus of resistance. <laughs> what? <laughs> I was going to say, because clearly it sort of feels like the Americans, like even under Trump, sort of have to at least kind of present the idea that they want to be seen as like the global good guys. And that this is just kind of like, you know, this is sort of, you know, bureaucracy that, you know, doesn't always work in the way you want. But if you work hard enough and like, you know, you'll get the waiver and like eventually you'll be able to do it. Whereas in Britain, it's like, no. Not, not going to well, happen. Although it's it's not it's just it's not uniquely American. We just put it no. in different places. Yes. And the, the the thing that I always you know discuss with myself is like you know the big institution that we like to do this that does self defense and it's the in its own way like this is the police here. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it is very much the kind of like we're we're glad it was you sort of mm-hmm. like harm reduction thing. Yeah, um, yeah. Everyone's got one, yeah. and it's and it's yeah. certain types of centrality. Now, I think this is becoming like there's there's ways that this, some places are going to make this more important for them, and other places. Clearly, I think in the European case, and especially in the UK case, they are just like sh- it is shooting and laughing. It is like I, I am sending a Type forty five destroyer into the English Channel to obliterate small boats coming over from Calais. And I am sending everyone to a concertina wire camp in Rwanda or um, up, is that still on or are they just putting them on the barge? Yeah, well, essentially what's happening is it's, it's a legal impossibility, which means at some point they're going to force the issue and make it an illegal reality. And when mm. that happens, that's going to be the breaking point, I think. Or special administrative measures. Yes. Yeah. We love a state of exception, don't we? You know, it's it's an unconstitutional 14th Amendment Act to say I'm banning Muslims from America. But if I'm saying it's a PP 9645 enhanced security screening, which, as you understand, applies also to North Korea, then it's fine. Right. And there, there's always a way and there's a way to reconcile it. But I think I think you have a good point of like the, these institutions are different for uh, for in every setting. But I think the mechanism as essentially, you know, I, I like the direction that TF has been going in talking about like whatever post-neoliberalism is going to emerge as, it's kind of happening now. And you can see elements of this of like an openness towards industrial policy, but also like this weird renewed kind of moral vigor behind basically dead liberalism. And you can see it in like the, uh, you know, Washington DC uh, foreign policy insider guy who now has changed his icon to one of those little Shiba Inus in a tracksuit and is like... (laughs) Yeah, NATO dogman. I'm a NATO dog man and I'm eating from my cozy bowl and I'm going back to Foggy I'm Bottom because we're X. fighting the good fight. I'm posting, I'm, I'm Xing myself about, uh, you know, b- based neoliberal, uh, you know, Ordo hegemony is, is vaporizing uh, orcs in, in Donetsk. It's in industrial policy. It's in, you know, laserized Joe Biden memes. But I think it's also in uh, an attitude of like, you know what? These institutions actually rock. They actually kick ass. And like, 
when Secretary Blinken announced that we're repealing the Muslim ban, right, he wrote this pretty self-congratulatory letter that was like, you know what, this was a moral stain on our country. I, it was wrong. And I'm big enough to say we were wrong. But then he actually, then what he did is he was like, also, I'm introducing a new type of executive order, which is retroactively changing all the immigration decisions made under this policy, which at the time, it was actually like incredibly great and merciful. If you got Muslim banned, I'm unbanning all of you. Except when I was reading that, and I was I was off in Mumbai at the time, I've long since departed that assignment. I was like, oh, shit, because what he just did is said, oh, yeah, I've established precedents that we can reverse immigration decisions via executive order, even after they're already settled. And I'm like, oh, cer- certainly the magically retroactively undo immigration decisions button will not be used for evil. Hitting the big bureaucratic control Z. Yeah, he's, he's like come into your office and installed a second unmarked button next to the ban Muslims and, button. And it's, and it's not as though these things aren't, aren't worth doing. They are, in fact, worth doing. I think the problem goes back to the institutional context in which they are happening is, is one where an, an, a set of institutions for advancing an imperial agenda will ultimately all, always take anything that you're doing, which is, we, even if you're, what you're doing is good, those institutions will, can then retroactively use it to advance an imperial future, agenda. We future s- left yeah. on red, waiting for the barbarians. <laughs> yeah. So we see this, in, the, we see this in, in all of our discussions of like the Home Office in Britain, where uh, a, lot of the, a, a lot of the things that were built by, by New Labour with their vision of a kind of technocratic, finely controlled utopia itself highly dy- with an id card yeah. itself mm. highly dystopian but you know never mind um a lot of those things were then seized on by subsequent uh, subsequent administrations what's well, it's the joke yeah. about the obama administration which is you know i've I, i've installed a sort of like techno utopian um sort of mass surveillance system that only requires the oversight of a benevolent philosopher king forever now to take a huge sip of coffee and watch these election results mm. roll in and and so this is and so you can sort of, I can sort of see uh, uh, Joseph while you're talking about the the repeal in that way because it's like yes this 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 thing has been has been done it was good and necessary that it was done but the institutional context in which it was done much like feeling bad is isn't like a locus of political resistance the institutional context in which it was in which it was done is creating more space for uh, you might say the um, the uh, next horrible yeah. thing indeed yeah. Yeah, which I mean, we don't we don't know what the next horrible thing is going to do or what it's going to be. I can tell you how it's going to be kind of administratively run. I can tell you probably under which authorities and I can tell you that we we haven't really come up with with the grim stuff. So, you know, since since leaving the State Department, I have been like working with and talking with immigration lawyers and and people trying to kind of wrangle some kind of accountability out of the U.S. immigration system. And uh, the kind of running joke is like, hey, what 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 weird shit is Stephen Miller going to come up with when he gets in, back into office next time? Right. Like what's what's yeah. the, what's the next horror coming out of the horror machine? I, I had like a not a, sort of a slightly kind of related to it, but I was thinking about this also in terms of like the next inevitable like global challenge when it comes to understanding like borders and especially where I feel like the institutions that you're talking about um will kind of come under a lot of pressure will be when um the higher securitization that comes with the effects of climate change like yeah. sort of dealing with like climate refugees we're seeing that a lot in europe we're going to be seeing that a lot like in the states and the southern border oh, what's, what's the racist book ship of um something what's the racist book i mean West- no 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 the, <laughs> camp of the saints camp, camp of the saints. saints thank you yes um and i and i wondered what your thoughts were on just like how then like if you're sort of like a liberal bureaucrat who like is you know maybe isn't kind of as skeptical as you sort of still believe 
believes that like the institutions are sort of like the bones of the institutions are still like fairly strong and you know eventually like you know you'll reach this point where you can kind of where you can like effectively manage your way like humanely through like these crises which i think like I, I can't speak for Europe, but I think, you know, there are certain aspects of like the current Labour Party for whom like the only thing they've really got left is just this idea that, well, sensible Keir Starmer will run the institutions effectively and like provide a more humane way to send people to Rwanda. Um, and so I wondered like, yeah, just but, like what are the challenges that you see coming up as a result of like what feels to be like climate disaster really accelerating the movements of people and institutions having to become or institutions as they are and as they're structured kind of then needing to become much more brutal in order to sort of sustain themselves i think the most frustrating part of this is that like the liberal response is actually like an 80 percent good one it's just that you know everyone's like this is horrific we're putting kids in cages we're doing all these things um that are that are totally wrong uh it's the 20%, the remaining 20% of liberalism with this like, okay, time to reconcile this with existing power structures. Like, you know, I'm going to just resolve the contradictions. I, I don't, I mean, to anyone in that situation now, I think it's really about, and we kind of have to start from the beginning, right? And I think you kind of have to start with, um, among people in these, these, these institutions, just get the idea of like within and against going at all of like, hey, maybe the problem is this, procedure the existence of these executive authorities at all in the americans in the american case specifically i think there's an argument to be made towards like the premacy of law right like a lot of these these horrors happening with even ice and the southern border are all due to executive orders right or presidential proclamations and be like well shouldn't we bring this back into the domain of law and democratic control is an argument that's actually pretty effective with a lot of liberals and like a lot of liberals are trying very hard to do that right um but that's not going to work everywhere, and I, I don't even really think it's going to work in the United States. I think that the first thing we have to do is be clear-eyed about like what the work is, right? Because I think that there is, when you're inside the institutions, there is a kind of there's a mystique that gets promulgated. Like it is the 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 idea that you can like what I thought when I joined, do it, but stay away from the yucky parts, right? And I think if you if you have to. It, you're going to have to get people inside the institutions to realize that there's going to be actually an opposite, like to stop identifying with the institution, to identify as cogs in a machine who are employees of that institution and might actually have an oppositional relationship with like their management structure or where they are. I don't think it's like diplomats can be workers because I think that there's an inherent culture of, of middle management to the whole thing. But I think that like discursive stuff kind of matters in, in this one set. Obviously, in a bigger social sense, it's like you've got to start creating demands for democratic or at least legal oversight over these things. Because when you look at people's mass attitudes and polling, it's actually pretty decent, right? The problem is, is then it goes into the administrative black box and it comes out as like an executive order that no one can do anything about. So like when people thought protesting the Muslim ban would do something, they shut down airports. Like it was a huge moment of direct action, right? People like, you know, pilots were refusing to take off and taxi cabs were going on strike, not taking people from airports when they thought that's something you could do. Um, so I, I think that it, it really is about kind of snapping out of it or breaking out of, uh, out of a kind of 
a, a haze or a mystique for the people inside these institutions. Falling out of love with the state. <laughs> yeah, fall, yeah, fall, like fall out of love with it and realize that in the end, it's it's not just a job, but also like you are. Conversely, it's it's just a job, but you're also not just a guy. Right. And I think if people can conceptualize themselves as like, wait, I'm part of the same machine and kind of really understand where they stand inside these institutions, I think I think at least there could be a more like a non a less ideological conversation about where these things are going. But like also, if I knew the answer, I would be shouting it from the rooftops. I mean, I I think it's going to take a while um, for me to kind of grapple with this and, and putting together the book proposal has been. I, honestly, the beginning of trying to grapple with this, because like I also don't really know what I could have done differently, right? Uh, well, I think also it's worth pointing out um, that that it's the, the the distinction between liberal liberal attitudes and then actual what actual power brokers will do, right? Like in the there is a huge there's a concerted effort among the Democratic Party in the states specifically to not give themselves more power and to cede that to the courts and executive orders so they don't have to do anything. There's a similar drive here not to sort of cede political power from parliament just because that's not the way that we're really set up. Like we don't we don't have the same kind of um we don't have the same kind of uh, a sort of like judicial for example oversight or exec or d- division between the executive and the legislative that America does. It's slightly we have a supreme court, but it, it is it is different enough, right? But they, that at the same time you know, even though these attitudes will again be popular among liberals, the parties that the liberals will vote for, right? Who will who will hold power over these uh, um, over these over these institutions that will be inf- making and enforcing these policies? You know, they ultimately they also don't want that authority either, or or here they want the authority to govern them in largely the same way. Yeah, it, it operates in a really particular way where the weird thing is during this time that I was exercising executive authority on people, I myself felt totally powerless, right? Like it really is the chief Wiggum, you know, like, oh, I'm, I'm only powerless to help you, not powerless to harm you. And so like part of my my like cop brained part, you know, my, my little instinct where I go is like, God, what if we could have actually made our own decisions like on on for this particular policy in that particular place, if if people had actually been able to function like diplomats did in the 70s, which is you're just like seven scotches deep with a stamp getting to do whatever you wanted. Come on in, boy. There, yeah, there yeah. was a lot of that. I was like, well, you, you seem good to go. Okay, you seem like a decent guy. And then you would just ka-chunk. And then it's like, congratulations, you have a green card. It's a paper card. I signed it, right? Mm. In, in that area where you actually had a lot of largesse and authority, it probably would have been a better outcome for individuals affected by that policy, right? Now, do I think, hey, let's give more unaccountable authority to immigration officials can ever turn out to be a good result? Uh, no, right? And so there's, there's uh, obviously the liberals are doing a lot of ideological work to reconcile this contradiction between what they say and what they do. But like those contradictions are manifold in the border of the liberal democratic state right now. And like, I don't know, there's there's a lot of ways that there could be bad answers to that. And I don't know exactly how to start moving towards a a good answer to that, which is, you know, return to the world, uh, return with a V to the world that existed in living memory where national borders and immigration controls were pretty perfunctory. Like, I mean, you know, you just kind of had to show up. A lot of people could travel without passports. It's like if you look at a picture of the U.S.-Mexico border from like 1912, it's just like a street. 
you know, and I'm not saying U.S. society was better than or less racist than or that there weren't. I mean, there were just straight up racial quotas in the U.S. immigration system at that time. But, you know, there's always been some mechanism of the control of populations moving from place to place. That's kind of been there as long as there's been like polities, right? The existence of borders as this sort of securitized zone that have to operate in this specific ideological way is like really, really recent. And so even if we could go back to like the 80s, it, that would be an improvement over what we have now. And if, if there's one hope, I think it is the recency and the contingency of these these sorts of border forms. Now, if there's the downside to that and something which is like, oh, damn, there, I have no flicker of hope. It's that everyone seems to be racing towards the um, kill everyone Greek Coast Guard uh, island evacuation kind of model of border control. Greek Coast Guard, yeah. no apology, no surrender. Yeah. So I guess we... We, Malacca. we I suppose we can, we can say the interim solution is let diplomats drink on the job again. That's true. Absolutely. Less, yeah. less, less hashtag resistance, more resistance and also more drinking on the job yeah that's yeah, right absolutely. yeah uh, and it people probably would have done that yeah now, uh, get drunker if you're a diplomat <laughs> joseph uh, i want to thank you very much as well for coming on and talking to us today it's been lovely having a chat yeah thanks for having me on oh, my pleasure this one this one goes out to all the listeners out there working tirelessly in bad places doing bad things <laughs> I, I i know that there's i think there's at least one uk diplomat i know who does oh, uh li- oh, i think listen to we that. have people everywhere mm, and they do. dm me because they know mm. i will sympathize and i will mm-hmm. so mm. i'm expecting some more after this goes out it's yeah. like okay actually mm. actually you know what N- new solution to this whole problem trash future deep state that's uh, maybe Ooh, so perfect. maybe so excellent Tra- trash yeah. future reverse gladio uh-huh. mm, just yeah. create a group chat we'll just we'll just uh-huh. disintegrate if you're a hog who works for mi6 please dm i, I am about to become the british vetholagalen uh, <laughs> 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 that's right anyway uh, Joseph, thank you very much. Um, we are go- we will be eagerly awaiting that uh, book proposal. We're now an agency also. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and you, the listener, thank you very much for listening. But also do remember that uh, that bouncers are part of the... Uh, they, they are holding their own border outside yeah, of comedy that's true. clubs. Every, so. every time uh, Sven or Misha bounces you, they feel bad about it. <laughs> yeah. um, Bouncing and crying. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, I think that's all for today. Uh, bye, everyone. Bye. Bye. bye.